lots of stuff going on. Sid, I really enjoy what we've uh, what we've got here. I think this is our third or fourth spaces for anyone right. who uh, doesn't know. If you if you've missed the last three that we've done, you can go on to our Spotify, follow the money podcast and you can find the recorded versions there you can also listen to them on twitter just i don't think you can fast forward uh, or rewind i'm not sure about that but i know it's easier to listen to on spotify after so today the end of money as we knew it building a portfolio in the new world and all of the slides that you've kindly made for us today are in the nest you can follow those in the twitter thread I'm going to throw Great. it over to you, Sid. I'll uh, I'll ask some questions along the way. If people yeah. want to DM me your questions, you can do that. If you, I know a lot of people don't really like to put their hand up and speak, that's fine. Just just private message me, and um, uh, Sid, take it over. Okay, great. I, I really enjoy these. It's a lot of fun, uh, really a lot of fun, and uh, it it causes me to so think a lot harder and work harder because I'm trying to not say dumb stuff and, and it's, it, it's uh, quite a joy actually for me to do this stuff. Okay. Um, now, uh, I've only have six, uh, uh, seven slides here, but what's a bit different tonight is I'm actually going to go through specific stocks and specific ideas. I haven't done that before. I've been more general. Uh, but with these few six slides, uh, this is also a good chance to review the, the model that I use and the theory that I use. And I think that's uh, really, really important um, because at the end of the day, uh, everybody does it different. They have different uh, emotions, different theories, different ways of looking at the world. There's thinkers, there's feelers, there's integrators, there's people like to take advice, et cetera, et cetera. So everyone's got to use a model. But what I try to do here is is bring in uh, models and perspectives and facts, if I can call them facts, that you don't find anywhere else because because uh, you, you just don't. So I'm going to start with, so first I'll, I'll do, uh, again, as I usually do, some of the general stuff, and I'll, I'll tailor it to what's happening currently. Then I'm going to get a little mathematical on some, some of the history and bonds, bond, bond numbers and valuations. I did that with Carl before, and I, I think I've been able to simplify it. And then I'll get into the specific ideas. So I think if I just go on with some questions, we can probably really cover a lot, you know, uh, well, I think, in 60 minutes. And I think I think it'll be something which uh, which hopefully uh, sort of makes sense and sort of sticks and gets people to think. And uh, I always get that feedback so I can I can verify that or not. Okay, so I'll just start with slide one. Is that okay? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, uh, slide one is talking about uh, what is the uh, geopolitical and the social environment right now. Uh, I really have a lot of respect for Robert Prechter with ElliotWave.com. He's got a socionomics.com, and I think he's come up with a theory as to how financial markets work, which is uh, more correct and more useful than a lot of other theories. And his model is that the stock market, and in fact, even interest rates, are simply a measure of feelings of optimism and well-being versus feelings of pessimism and not well-being in society as it goes and comes and waves. There's a, there's a plethora of books he's written and research he's done. And of all the stuff I've looked at, uh, I think he's really, really good. And I, I would recommend, I don't get any commissions or fees. It's, you know, I would recommend that you do it. I've personally studied Prechter's book on Elliott Wave Theory. Uh, and I've probably spent, frankly, uh, at this point, uh, 600 hours on it. I've studied it intimately, page by page, idea by idea, taking notes. And then I apply it and I go back. 
And there's another guy called Gord Neely, who's very, very good with Elliott Wave. I've looked at all kinds of other stuff, and I think they're all very poor and impoverished. These, these guys are, are very deep. The other person I'll refer to is someone that's quite famous I've talked to before called Jesse Livermore, who is the uh, world's most famous uh, stock uh, trader. Um, and he's got a little book called How to Trade in Stocks. It's only maybe 80 pages, the actual book, and then he's got some, some charts he uses. Took me a long time to figure out what he was talking about, but I found his model is very, very good, and I'll briefly refer to that. There's all kinds of other guys who are helpful, but those two guys, to me, have been the absolute uh, uh, best and exceedingly useful. Now, that's the positive part. The negative part is it's taken me at least uh, 200 hours to start to understand Livermore, 250 hours, 300 hours, 600 on Elliott Wave, and I'm just really getting going on it. But boy, do I ever find right now it's getting useful and gives me a great way to think about the stuff. And it, it's removed a lot of the, the fright of when a stock goes down. And, uh, and that's what happens often. You buy a stock that goes down, you don't know what to do. Some people uh, in error, I think, average down and some people sell right away. And neither of those things are correct. And it's deeper than that. And Livermore uh, describes it well once you understand what he's actually saying. So, uh, okay. Now, on the first slide, there's a picture of... Um, there's a copy of Practice Book Socionomics, The Science and History of Social Prediction, although I, th I think that's a good book, although I think his book on the socionomics of finance is great. You'll, you'll see it all on the web. The guy on the left is a guy called Russell Napier. Russell Napier is a, is a, uh, has his own university in finance. He was an analyst at uh, CLSA, Credit Lyonnais, uh, for years. And he's a very original thinker, and he's written uh, profoundly excellent books on bear markets. And um, uh, it takes a while to work through and understand it, but he, but he goes at least back to the beginning of the 20th century. And that's been very helpful to understand cycles and very helpful to understand uh, the current bear market that we're in. And you can find some of his commentary and stuff on the web. You'll recognize I, I have adopted some of it. And the other guy, of course, on the right is, um, is uh, Larry Fink at BlackRock. And I'm not sure why you put him there, but he's part of what's been happening in the world. Okay. Now, the, the core theme of, um, of Russell Napier is that we're in an era in the Western world of financial repression, an era of financial repression. Uh, and I think he's right. But what I can say for sure is that his models and how he looks at stuff is entirely consistent with what's happening in all capital markets. Now, financial repression means the governments, especially the United States government, is controlling and determining who can do what through finance. And he describes that in detail, and I'll talk about what that means. He also says that North America is entering the, the, the history of uh, an era of derogisme. Derogisme is a French word. It means government control, government direction. It's not communism. It's not a, a command economy. But the government directs by telling the banks who to lend to, by subsidizing, etc. That's the world we're entering into. And he says we're entering into the world because we're in structural inflation. Uh, that's an interesting subject. Um, I don't quite, I wouldn't put it that way, but I think his models are very good. Now, what does financial repression look like? It looks like what probably a lot of the listeners are observing. One, government controls in the allocation of capital. We know government has ESG agendas, uh, uh, biotech agendas. They've got oil and gas agendas. They're telling banks what to do. Clearly, we're a government controlling the allocation of capital environment. Government controls bank lending. That's happening. Government controls equity investing. That hasn't quite happened, but 
they sure went in there with BlackRock to support the market in 2020. And um, I think there's signs that, that that is increasing somewhat, but it's not as clear as controlling of banking and controlling of the allocation of capital through banking. Government possible controls of cryptocurrencies. Uh, clearly right now, if you follow uh, Nick Carter and, and, and Kitco News, and if you follow his uh, website, uh, which is um, absolutely uh, phenomenal, it's called uh, Pirate Wires. Pirate Wires. He's a very, very good guy. He's a very wealthy guy in, in tech. And he's got a very interesting perspective on what's happening in the world. He gives lots of evidence that the uh, government is getting involved trying to control or shut down uh, cryptocurrencies. In fact, he relates that to the fact that it was Silver Bank and Silicon Valley banks that were under pressure. And uh, you may want to check out you know, some of his, uh, of his works. You know, the SEC announced a lawsuit against crypto infrastructure. Uh, company Paxos, Kraken had to settle with the SEC for staking products. Gensler at the SEC is investigating uh, lots of currency, cryptocurrencies as being equity. The Senate Committee on Public Works has got a hearing, lambasting and Bitcoin for its environmental footprint. So you can see that uh, he may have a point in terms of cryptocurrency controls possibly coming. Now, will the government control uh, gold? Well, they did it in the 1930s. They could do it again. I suspect if they start to control it all in order to support the U.S. dollar, which they've done in the past, uh, they probably go after crypto first, which they've already started really, and gold later. But uh, but we'll see. Uh, finally, money creation that's going to continue. And the number six, I say the Fed is dead. Uh, I'll comment on that. So that is uh, uh, a concept of we're into this era of government of much more government control than ever before. So that is going to affect clearly capital markets through bonds, and it's going to affect equities. Now, what does financial repression feel like in the early stages? Well, I'll describe what it feels like when the government has taken a control over everything, and then ask yourself, is what I'm saying make sense? And two, is that what it feels like right now in society? One, one crisis to the next. Two, people shouting at each other, no discussion. Three, focus on bad guys and scandals. That's interesting. You know, there's always bad guys around and some good guys, and there's always potential scandals around. If you were to look at anyone's personal life or private life, you, you, you can scandalize anybody. Um, but these days you're hearing scandals about Credit Suisse, scandals about Bankman Freed, uh, all kinds of things. So that's interesting. Finally, um, financial repression looks like a bear market. And what do bear mar markets look like? Well, there's two, there's two aspects to a bear market. You get the occasional crash. You don't have to have a crash. Uh, when you have a really, really big bear market, at some point early you get a crash, and then a little later another one. You don't have to. But you get a flat market that goes up and down and up and down, doesn't do much. And basically there's maybe some big cap stocks that carry it, but everything else is, is going down and it's flat. Now, if you take a look at Schwab, which is down 35 45%, Piper, uh, Raymond James, and if you look at the way Tesla's been trading, etc., lots of signs that we're in a bear market and lots of signs that we're not getting out of the bear market, and it'll continue. And every time it's up 5%, 8%, 15%, people say, oh, it's over, it's all fine. Then it goes back down again. Well, in a bear market, nothing goes straight down. Just like in a bull market, nothing goes straight up. And corrections of uh, 35%, 50%, 66%, those are the Fibonacci levels, is normal. So in a bear market, a correction goes up, it doesn't go down. And those are the kinds of so-called bulls that, that we sort of get. So we're in a bear market. 
Now, in the bottom right, there's a very, very, very important chart here. This is factual, and these numbers come from the current status of the U.S. government accumulated deficit, the balance sheet deficit. These are also the projections published by uh, the U.S. Treasury, and you can find that on the web. And this is what's interesting, and I'll describe why there has to be absolutely ongoing inflation, no matter what the Fed does. The Fed can take rates to 10%. They can take rates to whatever percent they want. There's going to be inflation for a long time, unless we get a total crash, and then they just redefine the currencies. 2023, U.S. government projected deficits about $32 trillion. 2024, $35 If you can see it in that chart on slide one, uh, Carl. 2026, do you see those numbers there? I can, yep. And those are, uh, you know, Biden's budget. And Janet Yellen was, was, was talking to Congress, and they said to her, well, this is terrible deficits going up. She said, no, 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 it's, it's not going up. And they said, what do you mean? Just look at these numbers. She said, well, it could have gone up even more. So we, we've got it going up even less. But here's what these numbers are telling you. It's telling you that the average increase in the budget at best, at best is 5%, and in 2024, it's 7%. At best, it's 5 or 6%. Now, we know the population in the United States is growing by 0.5%. Even if the velocity of money is 1, people say, well, what's the velocity of money? You know, it's going down. It doesn't matter. Even if it was just 1, i.e., what they spend is what they spend, you've got the money being spent increasing faster than the population by 15 times, and the growth in the economy, the real growth, isn't there either. You know, <clears throat> with absolute and total certainty, there has to be inflation unless credit completely collapses. So that inflation is, is for real. Okay, <clears throat> now we'll look at the next slide, uh, which uh, is called uh, financial repression. There's four pictures in that slide. The picture on the left is from 1968. You've got the French Revolutions in 68 and the streets in 68. And below there, you've got the American Revolutions going on in Detroit and Chicago with the cops shooting at people, tear gas, Kent State, etc. That was 68. So we had an era of, financial, of, of social repression there and unhappiness. And guess what? We had huge inflation and war. Now, the pictures on the right is 2020. You've got the, the French uh, uh, protest yellow jackets in the 2020 in 2020 and then you've got the uh, black lives matter etc protest in the united states in 2020 60 years later 7 years later with those beautiful disco 70s and the wonderful 80 greed is good and the fantastic everyone wants to be a billionaire 90s we're back to where we were socially in the 60s and therefore it's not surprising that the economy feels like it was in the 60s with really bad inflation and stagflation there's a correlation there. That's practice theory. I think that's what's ultimately the, the, the cause of what's happening. Now, there's something called mercantilism. That's an important term. If, if you study uh, 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 the guy at uh, Robobank, very, very good guy, Zoltan in Europe, and if you study uh, Russell Napier, et cetera, he's explaining that countries are deciding, are coming up with a new definition of wealth. The old definitions of wealth was being part of the global system. Pareto optimality, you're good at something, another country's good at something else, they do what they're good at, they split it, America's good at creating technology, China's good at producing, Africa's good at you know, production of commodities, they all share it and whatever. That's, these, those are those classic theories, laissez-faire economics, the market works, the invisible hand, that's, you know, that's the way, that's a certain class of theory. 
But mercantilism comes and goes every 100 years or 120 years. It's coming back. Mercantilism says there's a limited amount of wealth. And uh, if you get richer, another country has to get poorer. Now, that concept of a limited amount of wealth goes totally along with Greta and ESG. And we're, we're, we're destroying the earth and there's not many resources. We have to be careful. We have to get poorer. That whole philosophy people are talking about is consistent with mercantilism. Either everybody is happy to be poor or there's only a fixed pie, a fixed pot. And if one country gets rich, then the other country gets poor. That type of philosophy is, is what you're really hearing about. You don't hear the word, but that's actually what's going on. And there's a long history there of mercantilism coming and going, just like free markets coming and going. Now, what are the visual effects, the, the initial current visible effects of financial repression? High actual inflation rates, high mortgage rates, high corporate spreads, meaning credit is hard to get and getting harder. Uh, ongoing measured volatility that's low. It's not that the stocks are volatile from day to day. They're just going up and down and up and down, basically down. But there's not, nothing suddenly happening each day. Credit card rates, very high. Treasury bonds, negative interest rates. We are still in negative interest rates. You put your money in the bank after inflation, you get way less money, way less money, even treasury bonds. Corporate zombies, uh, in the short term, you've got a, a strong U.S. Canadian dollar because where else do you go? T-I-N-A, T-I-N-A, there's no alternative. Social unhappiness. That is really, it's not, oh, what's the Fed going to do? 25 basis points, 50 basis points, there'll be a pivot. Uh, oh, the banks are, are you know, are, are making mistakes. There's no auditing. No, that, that's not what's going on. What's going on is complete financial repression and inflation. That is what's correlating with what's happening. It's correlating with the market, and it's correlating with how, with how you invest. Now, I'm going to have uh, one more slide on these, these concepts, then we'll get into the actual uh, selection of, of a portfolio, which I use personally myself. So I'll move on to slide three. And slide three is historical data and actuarial calculations. That's a really important slide. Now, there's, there's uh, <clears throat> two messages in that slide. And they're very important, and I don't think you see that anywhere in the popular press or even the unpopular press. The slide on the left is a story of German inflation in the 1920s. And uh, that was what, a, what an ounce of gold cost in German marks. And I think you can see, Carl, how it went in 1919 from 170 marks a, uh, uh, per ounce to 87 trillion in 2023, yep. right? Now, now. It, it doesn't happen on one week or one day or one month or even three months. But all of a sudden, when it really hits, it really hits. Now, people can say, well, you know, it's never going to happen here. But, but let's see how it hit. Uh, 170 marks per ounce in 19, January 19, 499 in 1919. A lot of countries are suffering kind of inflation like Argentina. Egypt is, is close to there. Ghana is bad. So five times up, and then 1340 in January 2020. Well, guess what? Uh, you, you're feeling poor, but at least you can eat. So between 1919, January, and 20, one year, you started to, at least you could eat. Things were getting tough. Okay, it's going to reverse. Now it's September 2020. It's uh, nine months later. And guess what? Things are getting a bit cheaper. All the newspapers say, oh, things are good. Everything's fine, whatever. Then it's January 2021, a full one year later, 1349. Basically, hey, things are okay. But guess what happens nine months later? 12% inflation. You can still eat. Not that terrible. 
but it, but it's it's sort of uh, interesting. I'm sorry, it's more than twelve percent. It's about seventy uh, percent. Then in January of 2022, five months later, another doubling. You can still eat. September 2022, nine months later. This is a lot of time going by, right? Thirty thousand. You've had two hundred uh, uh, ten times inflation. You're up nine hundred percent. I don't know why I put nine hundred ninety four percent there. It's it's a thousand percent. Now actually, you're hungry. You're actually hungry. Then it's three seventy two. Uh, five months later, then it's a quarter of a million franc uh, 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 Deutsche Marks, and guess what? Starvation. Nine thousand two hundred percent people are actually starving. Then it takes off, and once it hits, it hits and boom, it just blows up for uh, uh, three or four months. And guess what? It's infinite in twenty twenty four. And you know what happens then? Germany's in big trouble. It sets the pattern for Nazism, massive poverty, and that changed society. So, so that's how you know monster inflation shows up. So the message is, it happens bit by bit, but when it hits, it really hits. That's what you don't want to see, and that is sort of what the Fed doesn't want to see. That's what the government doesn't want to see. But the question is, just because the politicians don't want to see it, does it mean they're willing to actually stop it? As historically, the answer is, generally speaking, with rare exception, no, it does not mean that. Okay, so that's on the left. Is, is that message sort of there, uh, uh, Carl? Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm just holding back questions. Okay, it's there in terms of potentiality. Now there's a nice chart on the right, and it's only got, uh, you know, like eight or nine numbers, but that is the most important chart I've ever put up. It's actuarial, it's mathematical, and I'll just describe briefly what it says. And, and it tells you what happened, what's been happening since 2020. And I think it's... It's really, really crucial to understand it. I'm talking about a $100,000 bond. So you've been able to see that in various ways. You've got $100,000. You put it in a government bond, a 20-year bond that pays 5% when bought. Okay, so what's the price of the bond? $100,000. Now, let's say the, the, uh, rate of, the uh, interest rate stays fixed at 5%. Well, the bond has a, a $100,000 price. It pays interest. It reinvests. Now, what happens when the, when the interest rate falls to 1%? That's the second column, okay? So when the interest rate falls to 1% in the second row, if you have no inflation or if you even have inflation, at the moment the interest rates go to 1%, your bond just went up by, by $72,000. So the price of the bond is actually up and you feel rich. And that's what happened, broadly speaking, from 1980 up until 2020. But it really happened in 2020 when rates hit negative. Anyone who had financial assets felt rich, right, Carl? That's correct. And then they re- and then they but leveraged their guess- home bought liabilities. <laughs> Most people. That's right. But but guess what happens when you have a hundred and seventy-two thousand dollar bond that you're supposed to have a yield to maturity on a five percent, but now the interest rates are actually one percent. That's in the third row, and that is probably the most important row. Here's what's happening. If, if they hadn't changed the rate and you just had the bond and reinvested it, in 20 years, it would be worth $265,000. That would be the price at that time, interest plus principal. But when rates go to 1%, the reinvestment of your interest shrinks. So at the end of 20 years, you have $50,000 less. So even though you felt richer initially, you're actually poorer. And that's what we talked about a few months ago, right, uh, Carl? I, couldn't, I, I didn't do it properly mathematically to explain yeah. it, but that's but what happens. Wanna- 
elaborate a little bit more? I know I understand you simplified it from when we've currently spoke about it, but it's an extremely important point right now. Here's the point. Uh, it's the Kansas City shuffle. Uh, I convince you that you're richer because I took down the interest rate and your bond goes up in price. But every penny you earn from now on is a lot less. You've just gotten poorer. You've gotten poorer. Because if you spend it all, you just spent your savings. Well, now you're really poor. But your ability to save is now less. So you either start with 100000 that you have a good ability to save, which means you get richer and richer at a healthy rate. Or you start off with 172000 but your ability to save is less and less. So by the time your savings accumulate, you're poorer than you would have been. That's what 2020 and 2021 was all about. When the markets were going up, the S&P was going up, NASDAQ was going up, Tesla was going up, ARC was going up, everything was going up. You're actually getting poor. You're not getting rich. The everything bubble. Unless you decide you want to spend everything, well, then where are you? But your ability to uh, do, keep that up is, is declining. So if anyone's really interested, in, you should think about it. If you don't understand it, feel free to contact me, you know, either through email or LinkedIn or whatever. I'm happy to get contacted. That's really important to understand. Now, there's something even worse than that. When interest rates go from 5% to 1%, and that's why I had that previous chart with government spending going up by 6 7 8% a year and the population plus growth only 1%. You have to have inflation. So here's what happens with that, with that bond with that 1% interest rate. And take a look at the fourth row, spending power. If you have no inflation, and if you have 5% interest, your spending power has gone from $100,000 at the end, to the end, to the end of 20 years to 265000 Your spending power is real. Your price of your bond is real. And um, uh, you're in damn good shape. And what you hope would happen has, uh, has actually happened. So that's good. Now, how about when you have inflation? All right. Let's look at the third column. Not only... Instead of having 265000 you have 210000 But the value of your money is declined. And take a look at the one, two, three, fourth row down. Your spending power is not 265, 329. Your spending power is $54,292. You have lost your savings to the extent of uh, 75%. So if anyone under the age of 40 or 35 is having trouble on one income or even two incomes, having a house and paying it down, et cetera, et cetera. This little chart tells you exactly mathematically why, and that's the economics of the world we're living in. Um, that is underlying derogisma. That's underlying social unhappiness right now. It's underlying what's happening in the markets right now. That is the core of what's happening. Okay, so far, Carl? Yeah, I just think that uh, very important for people to understand the government control um, and that, and that word, derogisma, is that how, how you pronounce it? Derogisma. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think Direction. write that one down and, and study that, go Google it because honestly it's, uh, I, when I first heard it, I didn't, I didn't even know what it was and Sid explained it to me a few times. I, I did my own research, but um, it, it won't take you long to figure out, you know, that's definitely what's happening in the world right now, especially in North America and Europe. And Russell Napier, uh, you know, there's his book there. Just Google him. You'll get his, you'll get his papers. And uh, you know what? Then you decide if, if you think that's a good model.
for what's happening and what it implies. Then when you go back and look at this chart on page three, you know, Bill Ackman can say what he wants and, uh, you know, uh, Kiyosaki can say what he wants and, and, and Warren Buffett can say what he wants. But you got to know what this, you know, really, really means. And there it is in uh, on the New York Times on, this, on the screen. Uh, now what I'm going to do is, uh, you know, use all that and we're going to talk about uh, specific uh, uh, investment ideas. And uh, number one, of course, I have to give the legal uh, theory that, um, uh, you know, it's not, it's not uh, advice. It's not financial advice. And it really it can't be because financial advice is an ongoing process. It's not something happened at a point in time. There's an ongoing relationship and everything has to be mo modified. But this is the way that I think. This is the way that I invest. And this is what I do. And then I'll, I'll have some technical charts afterwards. And I have a fundamental uh, analysis guy as well. We'll talk about that and what I talk about. So the next half hour or so we'll be talking about, which we haven't done before, specific stock ideas, specific, pretty simple valuation methodologies, and specifically what I do. And uh, then, you know, people can decide and the uh, approach, et cetera. But this is how I look at it. Now, I should mention something. I did yes. get a question in a DM, and I am very excited to get to your portfolio and how you, how you sort of approach things. That's kind of the solution, and I know everyone's excited for that. Um, but some people don't understand what a corporate zombie is, so I just thought, you know what, just explain it if you don't mind. Sure. A corporate zombie is a company that uh, has revenues of $100, costs of $200, loses $100 a year, and has to keep financing and equity and debt markets to keep going. That's a zombie. So it's a, a, an apparently living dead person. So it's a company that looks like it's alive, but it's actually dead, and it's on life support. Someone's moving the arms and the legs. That's what a, that's what a corporate zombie is. Okay, and one more question for you. Do you, I, you have mentioned before that you don't believe in fundamentals, but today maybe you kind of went the other way. Do you still believe in fundamentals or do you not? Okay, uh, I have a religious belief that there must be some reason stocks go up and stocks go down. And like Warren Buffett says, in the long run, you're weighing what's happening. That's fundamentals. So that part I believe, it, it's a faith, it's, it's a belief. But here's what I do believe. Fundamentals will not help you pick an entry point to buy a stock or to buy a bond and will not help you pick an entry point to leave a stock or a bond because uh, – as much analysis as, as you do, all you can all you can confirm at best is that market isn't corrupt, or that the that the numbers aren't totally wrong or false. But you can't find under or overvalued stocks. So when I say I don't believe in fundamentals, what I mean is it does not help you find an overvalued stock or an undervalued stock. That it does not do, and it doesn't tell you when to enter or when to leave. So, so it's not a method that can help you determine. That's ultimately what you have to do when you do a buy ticket or a sell ticket. That's what I mean by not believing in fundamentals. The other reason I say I don't believe in fundamentals is you never really know why something goes up or down. It's like you never really know why somebody did something. There's what they did. There's the reason they give you for what they did. There's what they think was the reason, which may be the same as the reason they give you. Usually it's not. And then there's what really happened, and who the heck knows? So I think with people, that's my theory. And with uh, paper assets and hard assets, that's my theory as well. Just like a business never quite knows why a specific product sells or doesn't sell. 
So a statement from someone uh, via PM PM because they can't speak is trading patterns are manipulated like balance sheets are. Would you respond to that? Okay. Yes, uh, that is a, a very important point, and uh, uh, here's what I'm going to share. Number one, just like I don't believe you can ever determine exactly why what happens happens, when it comes to trading patterns, uh, you can't exactly determine why these things happen either. So the fundamental reason that trading patterns occur, you cannot determine that either. So that part of the statement is, is correct. You can give rationalizations, you can give some hypotheses, but you can't do that. So what you're... What you may do, and this is what I do, is you say, okay, how do I carry out the scientific experiment? What's the best I can do? Well, the best you can do is study trading patterns over uh, long, long periods of time. The first thing you have to do is get books on it. And there's only two, real, two, you know, two or three books you really have to get. There's Bob Tractor's book, and there's, there's a book by Gordon Neely. Study that really, really, really carefully and start to, to see if historically, stocks actually do that if they go in cycles. And I think you're going to find they do go in cycles. Then you have to study it further and say, okay, are the timing, is the timing predictive or is the price predictive? And I think what you're going to find is in the timing is sort of predictive in the bull market. It's not really predictive in the bear market, number one. And number two, you're going to find that prices are somewhat predictive in a bear market bull market, but harder to predict than a bear market. But you're going to find ranges and patterns. And uh, then for the specific individual, the question is between that plus everything else that's going on that they're aware of, can they use those patterns as part of their decision-making process to have a subjective risk evaluation? So it's not a, it's not, to put it differently, there's no mathematical formula. It's not one plus one equals three. But it's like, it's like, you know, an even number plus an odd number uh, makes an odd number. An even number plus an even number makes an even number. And if you can tell which numbers are even, which are odd, more often than not, plus a bunch of other things, to me it adds very definitive value and it adds more value than uh, fundamental analysis. Now, that's the first part to the question. I'll answer the second part and then maybe there may be a further question, okay? When you look at the reason for charts uh, sort of uh, being helpful in terms of bulls and bears and cycles, um, usually in a bull market or in a bull move, there's a, there's a step up and, and then down, a step up and then down, and a step up. So three ups and two back. It's called a five pattern. Then in the bear market, there's a step down, then it goes up, uh, a correction up, and then down. Uh, that's a Fibonacci concept but it's also a concept of if you try to come up with a model for growth that explains growth in the long term which occurs but is goes up and down in the short term so it goes up around up and down around a, a, a certain pattern those are the minimum criteria for uh for mathematical patterns i'd have to show you where that's described in practice book and i'd have to also explain it in more detail but mathematically that's a minimum a minimum pattern so it's like all scientific concepts go with the simplest explanation, number one, okay? Now, in terms of patterns, now i got to say something which is uh, a little esoteric, maybe, but it's been around for a long time. And even, uh, you know, Nicholas Taleb talks about it and other people in financial markets. 
you, I think we've all, or a lot of us have heard of the concept of fractals, right? Where things contain a repetition of their pattern inside them, and then they're part of a bigger pattern outside them. It's like the way, et cetera, fractals, right? These waves are actually fractals, which means there's small cycles up and down, just like there's big cycles up and down. So if you think of somebody's mood, you know, they go through bad years, they go through good years. And those good years, they go through bad quarters and bad quarters and good quarters. And the bad years, they go through better quarters and really bad quarters. And then there's good weeks and bad weeks. Those are your weekly cycles, your daily cycles, your monthly cycles, your annual cycles, your year cycles, right? Well, it's the same thing with stock markets. There's different cycles. So unfortunately, when you do chart analysis or, or, or Elliott Wave Theory analysis, you have to look at stuff from all the cycles. Just like right now, you can have a stock that's got a nice bullish pattern, but you got to remember that the entire stock market's in a bearish pattern. So when you're bullish in a bearish pattern, it's not going to be as good as bullish in a bullish pattern. So you can't do simplistic cycle analysis because the universe is not that simple. It, uh, it's complex. Just like uh, you get warmer times and colder times during the day in the winter, and you get warmer times and colder times during the summer, but the winter is colder generally and the summer is like hotter. being married. So that's, yes, yes, very similar. Unless when you get really old and finally mature, usually women get there around 35 and men get there around 85. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you agree with that, Carl? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, well, I wasn't going to elaborate. I just thought I'd make the comment. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, so that's uh, patterns. Uh, I'm happy at some point to discuss that in more detail with people. But again, Bob Prechter has the Elliott Wave Principle. If you re- if, to me, if you really want to learn uh, this stuff and then see what you think, that's the book. It take, it, it's only 150 pages or 200 pages. It's been in, it's been in study and analysis for, for um, 35, 40 years. He readopted it from R.N. Elliott's original works in the 30s, which I've studied carefully. And he's a really, 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 really nice man, a really good guy. So, again, before uh, you go into your portfolio, which I know a lot of people are waiting for, uh, since yeah. you have this perspective and you're able to offer this to people because of your, your studies, which is super high value, um, what's your personal take on, on, on governments? Or you, know, you can speak in general terms about governments around the world and their purpose, or you can be more specific up to you. But with, all, with where you're at in your life, um, Sid, and how you feel. I, I think it's very important to ask someone like you know, like you, this question, right? How do you feel about governments? Okay, I've got a very, very, very definitive answer on that. Uh, I've been a study of student of history for a long time. I've studied political science. You know, uh, ethics and, and civilizations are really important to me. And uh, I could give you some references if you're interested. But uh, here's what I would say. Um. No country ever lasts much more than 200 years. Uh, Some don't even last that long. Some might last 300. When they start, they get stronger and stronger. And then at some point, they get weaker, then they get stronger and weaker and stronger. But eventually, they all disappear. Uh, When you're in a country that's getting stronger and more important, and the economy's doing well and politically doing well, then you think your government's doing a great job and your leaders are great. When you're in a country that is struggling, falling apart, very much like the way the United States looks like right now, France looks like right now, Germany looks like right now, then, oh, the government's bad. It's their fault. 
Um, so I don't believe that governments actually cause good things to happen. And I don't believe governments cause bad things to happen. I think all societies basically go from good to better to great to less great to good to less good to terrible and they fall apart. So governments cannot control that just like the Fed cannot control interest rates. But sure, when, when things are going well, oh, Volcker was a genius. Look how smart he was. Things are going well in the 90s. Boy, that, uh, that Greenspan, he's the maestro. He's really smart. Things start to fall apart. Oh, Jerome Powell, he's bad. Just like sports, right? The guy gets three goals. They win the playoffs. He's great. You know, the, the guy doesn't get any goals. They lose the playoffs. He's a bum. It's not, it's not the evaluation of governments. It's just what happens. Societies go up and down. That's my perspective on governments. There's no perfect system that ever has been. Uh, dictatorships can work well. Democracies can work well. Uh, constitutional governments can work well. But eventually you get dictatorships, you get uh, oligarchies, and you get the mob destroying the country. So I'm not the first guy to say that. And uh, that's, that's my take on governments. You, uh, they're just like people. They have good times and bad times. You, now, at times like this, when times are really, really rough, at some point, I believe that politicians realize they can't do anything. So their model goes from uh, uh, trying to be helpful to saving their butts. And I think we're sort of in that model right now. So this is from our friend Aaron. He's, he asks, do you feel that socialism historically becomes communism? Uh, I believe... You're going to laugh when I say this, that democracy historically becomes communism. Um, and I believe that communism and, and tyranny eventually becomes democracy. So basically just everything enters into an overcompensating period and then it shifts. Exactly. Yeah, it makes sense. For the same reason that – exactly. Yeah, it, it, it does make sense. Um, okay, so I did invite uh, Paul in here. I know Aaron can't speak. He's with his family, so he's just messaging me privately. Yeah. People are DMing me stuff um, as well. Paul, feel free to jump in at any time. But I'm, you know what, Sid? Why don't you get into your portfolio now and let's let's get into the solutions um, because that's probably okay. the most exciting part. Right now, I'm going to talk about what I do, and I just wanted to add uh, one thing, which I think Carl, you're going to find sort of funny. And I hope everybody who's listening will find this funny. It's a, what I'm going to say is a bit like what Woody Allen used to say when he was sort of a good guy. And, and I'll say this. It's, maybe it's not culturally sensitive, but, you know, okay. Uh, when different people give views on television, first you've got a guy like Kramer. Kramer is a, is a well-paid entertainer. So, so he'll, his views and his advice is really entertainment. So he's always going to give advice that's entertaining. That's Kramer. Uh, then you've got uh, stockbrokers, or I'm sorry, you've got you've got you got uh, stock promoters. Well, stock promoters, uh, the cost of their shares is zero or one cent. So after that, it's pretty easy to make money. You might not make any money, but it's but it's not going to be you're not going to lose much money. So when you're talking to a stock promoter, you're talking to a guy who comes from a place where he worked hard to get it going, but he's, he hasn't got much to lose. You're going to get certain kind of advice. Then you get brokers when you talk to brokers. Well, a broker takes someone's shares, he sells it to you. Or he takes someone's bonds, he sells it to you. He takes your bonds, sells it to somebody else. He takes a cut in the middle. And he watches things go up and down. And he goes from sector to sector, whatever's hot. That's the broker. A broker's never really at risk. 
So when he gives advice, he doesn't see the world the way you see the world. He's not suffering the way you're suffering. So that's the kind of advice you get from, from a broker. Then you, get a, then you get corporate raiders, Bill Ackman, et cetera, or these short, these short dudes, right? Well, they're basically Hollywood script writers. They're putting a script together. They're, they're trying to win a, win a, win a political comp- competition, right? So they're looking at it very different from you. When they say stocks are undervalued, it's because be, and it's management's fault. It's because they want to buy it and convince people it's worth more so they can sell it. So you're going to get a certain point of view, right? Then you get these wonderful people called mutual fund managers and pension fund managers. They get paid a lot of money no matter what happens. They never have to beat the market. Matter of fact, as long as they don't lose a lot more than the market loses, and as long as they don't make that much less than the market, they're okay. So you're going to get a certain kind of advice from those guys. And, you know, that's okay, but that's what you're getting. So I've discussed four groups so far. Then you're going to get a guy, quite a genius, actually, like George Soros, if you read his stuff. And at the end of the day, how does he say he makes his money? He makes his decisions. Well, he says, well, you know, I see what other people think. I see what seems to be working. I get in there if I think it's going up because other pe- there's more and more people jumping on it. But when my back really starts to hurt, I know I've got to get out. So his model is get in when it looks good, see what other people are doing and see if more people are starting to believe it. That's when it's good. And if your back really starts to hurt you, then you sell, you get off the position. That's Soros, right? Then you get this guy I talk about, Nicholas Taleb, famous guy, writes tons of books, wealthy guy, anti-fragile, etc. What he says is you never know what's going on. So play it very, very conservative. But take a lot of small, inexpensive, long-term bets you can afford to lose. Keep it to 10% of your portfolio. And when one of them works, you do really well. That's his advice, right? You get the Elliott Wade guys that I like. They don't really give investment advice. They just tell you what patterns you have to use it uh, yourself, right? So the reason I went through all those guys is just to demonstrate to you that uh, what you hear, everyone's got a perspective. It's not that they're trying to get your money. It's not that they're lying, but that's their perspective. So the question is, what's your perspective? Now, right now, I'm at the point in life where I have to invest at more or less what's a fair price. I have to know what, you know, I have to have my own theory and I have to basically figure out if I'm uh, over over my time frame, making a decent return or my time frames. If I'm not, then I'm losing. I'm losing wealth. So uh, I preamble with that. Okay. Now, my time frame, I know myself. Uh, my time frame, the way I look at it is, number one, I like to have a certain asset base, which is really, really secure. Right now, it's impossible. There's no such thing. But, you know, we haven't got massive, massive, massive inflation yet. So I keep a lot of cash around. Um, so that's a good thing. At least the nominal value is not going, nominal price isn't going down. When it comes to investing, I am inherently at heart a trader i like to buy something watch it go up and then sell <laughs> and there's different ways to do that and i study what works and i know emotional control is really really important and using rules is very very important i hear and you are talking about marriage types of rules right okay well there you go that's just, stocks or marriage except you know hopefully you're not renting your wife when you buy stocks you're renting them so but it's related um so 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 when i uh uh, invest. You have. To, I have to know myself. I I get too much fun buying stock and watching them go up, and I even enjoy if the stock's going down, selling it before I lose too much money. It gives me great pleasure, and I and I get pleasure either way. And I get pleasure making money, but sometimes I get a lot more fun actually selling. 
uh, at a bit of a loss. Uh, now, why is that? I have no idea why it is, but I have to know that about myself or else I'm going to make mistakes, right? Um, so I've got my conservative half that no matter what happens, it's there, more or less. Inflation might kill it, but that means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy real estate with, with little leverage. And then I've got my trading hat, and that's sort of what I do. Okay. Uh, with that, I'll go through what I do, and it's that slide there. It's called Savings and Investment Hypothesis. So I've got the left side and I've got the right side, and I'm going st- to talk a bit about w- the factors I look at and why I'm looking at each of these things. So first of all, I'm going to uh, talk about um, dangerous places to save or to put your money. Long-term treasury bonds, i.e. long-term government bonds. I would say for me personally, long-term government bonds are the ugliest, worst possible place you could be. They're a disaster, and they're going to keep being a disaster for me. There's the uh, bond portfolio you can buy on the equity markets in the U.S. called TILT, T-L-T. I'm not sure what it stands for, but it's a bond portfolio. And if you look at the chart, it's a clear uh, five-wave pattern, up a lot, nice correction. That's 2009 to 2010. And then the correction is two years from, from uh, 12 to 13, one year. Then a nice, a nice up, uh, not that strong, which was interesting. And that was a uh, that was a uh, fourteen fifteen, then a flattish kind of correction sixteen seventeen. Now note these time frames; they're long. They're long, right? Sixteen seventeen and eighteen down. Now then you start to get an up pattern in two thousand eighteen and goes straight up for uh, two years. There's there's a complete growth pattern: up down, up down, up down. They meet all the tests of the uh, Fibonacci corrections. They meet the tests that the third wave is not the uh, smallest wave. You've got impulse waves. You've got extend. Everything is perfect, fits in the pattern. You can see it, which is why I like Elliott Wave Theory. I like Prechter. Now, what happens in, uh, at the end of 2020? That is the ugliest, most brutal chart you could possibly see. It's almost a perfect classic, and it tells me that those bonds are going down. You have a 38% collapse from uh, 2020 to uh, 2021. Then you had a correction, 25% correction from 135 to 150 during 2021. She said, oh, great. It's a bull market. Bonds are good. No, it's not. That was a correction. You can't go straight down. You can't go straight up. Then in late 2021, you get the ugliest looking uh, uh, 87 to 85 degree line going basically straight down. towards the end of 2022, then you get a correction. People are getting positive. The correction was minuscule. It was not existent. It only went up about 8 10%. And now that thing's going to go down. So I would, I would not touch a treasury bond, period. Looks terrible. That's why I'm out. And it's not even, I got their negative and real interest rates. Yeah, yeah I can say, oh, what, there's inflation. There's this and that. They're not good. But the reality is that this chart was looking good it would cause me to change my view and I have to change my view of the fundamentals. So it's not the fundamentals talking about to do, it's the chart telling me what to do and then I can rationalize it. That's what I think of long-term bonds, Canadian and U.S. Uh, Now we come up with rationalizations and it's consistent with what I had in the previous slides and they all make sense. But you know what? Government policies can change pretty quickly and everything could change, but that's what I think of bonds. Okay on that? Yep, that's that's covered. And again, okay. this is what Sydney's doing with his portfolio. Not advice. He's just talking as as he sees it. Right. 
Now I look at the law at the U.S. dollar. So if I was a fundamental guy, I'd say, oh, get away from the U.S. dollar, inflation. If you don't like bonds, you don't like the dollar. Well, you know what? When I look at the, uh, at the, at the U.S. dollar chart, Dixie, U.S. dollar versus foreign currencies, I see a nice increase from 1988 to 1998, a, a wave one. I see a, 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 a modest correction or, or actually a serious correction, but at a slow pace. From uh, 2000, from 88, sorry, to 2004. Then I see a, a bear market or a flat market from 2004 to 2012. And then I see it on an uptick. I see the U.S. Dixie on an uptick from 2014 going up. And it's been going up ever since. The ups and downs don't bother me because as it's been going up, you get your, your 53535. The threes mean they're going down. If you sit back and just watch it day to day or week to week, oh, yeah, you know, dollar's going to weaken. It's about time, inflation. But that's not what the chart tells me. Therefore, I can hold the, uh, the, uh, the U.S. dollar. Now, because I trade primarily, if not only, uh, U.S. stocks, except for Canadian juniors, uh, pennies, micro stocks, um, therefore, I have to be reasonably comfortable in the U.S. dollar, and I am. Now, I can sit back and rationalize the fundamentals. Why is the U.S. dollar so strong fundamentally? You know, oh, I could make up reasons like other people can make up. It's still the world's reserve currency, even though the Chinese, the Iranians, the Brazilians, the Russians, everybody else is trying to get off the dollar, and, and they're going to get off sooner or later. Um, oh, gold is going to come back. Bitcoin's going to kill it. I can come up with all those reasons, like, like you know, the gold bugs do and the Bitcoin bugs do. But you know what? That's not what the chart tells me. That's a long-term chart, and it fits classic Elliott Wave patterns. Now, the Canadian chart. The Canadian chart is more volatile. And the Canadian dollar was very strong from 99 to 2000. And then it got very weak from 2000 to 2000. And uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the Canadian uh, dollar, other way around, sorry. The, uh, the Canadian dollar w- was, was very weak from 99 to 2000. That was the technology era. And then the Canadian got very weak, very strong from 2000 to 2010. Uh, that was the, uh, the resource era. And after the resource era died, after the Chinese Olympics, the Canadian dollar got uh, weak again, and basically it's been staying at par with the U.S. dollar. That's a nice story. It says, oh, Canada's a, a commodity economy, so when the commodities are strong, the dollar goes up, and the commodity dollar goes down. That's a nice story. Uh, is it true or not true? Who knows? You'll never know. But I have noticed that in the last 10 years, basically between 120 and 140, the Canadian and the U.S. dollar is uh, is is more or less fixed to the buck 30, and it goes up and down within a 5 to 7% pat range, 5 to 7% is nothing. So unless I was an Elliott Wave guy who traded the dollar by watching literally the, the trades minute by minute, week, hour by hour, I traded the daily Elliott Wave, which you can do because they're fractals, and they're fractals because of psychology. Psychology occurs at all uh, degrees in a fractal, just like you know, you've got happy family, a happy wife, happy husband, parents are dying, kids are screwy, but the community is nice. You know, all these different things happening simultaneously. But the chart tells me the Canadian dollar is fine. It's no better or stronger than the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is fine. So I can be, I don't have to worry about the currencies yet. Okay? So that's why I can hold my uh, my U.S. Uh, S&P stocks, number one. And eventually, I'm not going to live in the States. I live in Canada. I have to be able to transpose them into spending power in Canada. And therefore, I need to watch the Canadian dollar. And looking at these charts long term at all 
degrees at the 20-year chart, the 10-year chart, the five-year chart, the yearly chart, looking at all those things, everything is fine. So while I hate bonds, I'm fine with the dollar so far. If the dollar was looking terrible and the Swiss franc was really going up, which it ain't, and if uh, you know uh, gold was really continuing to go up, uh, I'd, I'd be changing. And I wouldn't be changing suddenly. I'd be changing in fifths, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%. That way, the most I lose with the first 20% is 10% of 20%, which means 2%. What I mean by that is if I expect to make a $100 profit, first I put in one-fifth of my position. So one-fifth, it should, it should go between, um, it should be going up. If it goes down, I'm out. So my loss is small. If it goes up, hey, that's cool. Then I watch it, then I go in some more. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, so far? <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay, we good? Yep, we're good. Okay, now I'm going to talk about uh, Bitcoin, okay? Now, uh, I understand the mathematics of Bitcoin quite well, and I understand the uh, psychology of Bitcoin in terms of decentralized currency, and I understand that uh, if, if politicians didn't get in the way, hey, it might be wonderful, it would be the new goal. I get all that, and I know people under the age of 40 like it. I get all that. But when I look at the chart, that's got to be the ugliest looking long-term chart I can imagine. We had one single wave from 2012 to 2020, where it went from zero to six to $50,000. That's nice. And then you had a correction, and we're still in the corrective phase. It went from like 60 to 40 in 11. It went from 40 to 60 in, in, the, in 21, 22. I mean, during 21, it went from 60 to, to um, 40 or 38. Then I'm looking at the chart. Then I went up to 60 a year later. Then it went straight down with, with this, what's called a zigzag pattern from 60 down to 20,000. And now it's just hovering up and down, up and down. That is what you call uh, a, a wave two correction. It's, it's called a flat. It goes down first, then it goes up, but it's got even, even higher than the 50,000. The 50,000 is called an orthodox top. A correction, usually you wouldn't expect as it's corrected, it'll go higher than the previous high, but they happen. They happen in triangles and they happen in, in, in flats. They don't happen in zigzags. But all the Fibonacci numbers are here. This is exactly what happens. And if you look at the nature of the, uh, of the down in the, in, in the flat, and if you look at it, it's a three, a three, and a five. That's a perfect flat pattern. A three means a down, up, down. And then the next one is the three, up, down, up. And then it's a straight five. And we're, we finished that first uh, massive correction. And that is a $40,000 correction on a, uh, a $60,000 gain. That's a classic Fibonacci 61% correction or 66. It's a tiny bit higher. And the, the, the uptick in Bitcoin right now is simply noise. It's simply uh, with producing what's called a double, uh, a double three. And to me, therefore, there's a good chance it could go straight down to 10,000, 5,000. Now, that's just the chart. Uh, now, one could reinterpret the chart. You have to look at all kinds of time frames. But that chart, to me, is definitive. Uh, so, you know, I'd have trouble with it. Now, apart from Elliott Wave, and this is where Jesse Livermore is absolutely fantastic. I have studied his technical trading patterns from the billionaire, the world's greatest trader, 
and uh, very carefully. He wouldn't touch Bitcoin because his test is a is a uh, uh, when you have a correction, he watches for the first correction. He called it a reaction. Then he waits to see what happens. Then he waits for the second reaction. And if the second reaction is not as serious as the first reaction, he might take a small position, but he doesn't get excited until you get a 20% move. Anything less than a 20% move is noise. Well, um, when you look at the Bitcoin long-range pattern, all right, uh, even even if it's a short-term trade, uh, I haven't seen it test two bottoms. If you want to buy it off at 20 because you think it's good at 27, it's going up, You've got to have a double test at 20,000, and there's no, no double test yet. So if he saw the, the next reaction down to 20, or it doesn't quite get to 20, which, which is what he wants to see. And then if he sees it uh, on a rally, go past 27, 28, all right, he's, he'd be building a position. Uh, but I'm at more of an Elliott Wave guy. I look at it long term. I'm very suspicious of the governments, as is, uh, you know, Pirate, Pirate Wires, who's a big venture capitalist who's phenomenal. I know what the government's, how they're thinking about Bitcoin. There's only one way they can think about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. They want to kill it. And everything they're doing, they're doing, I think, to, to kill cryptocurrencies because it's not good for the perceived U.S. dollar. And the fact that it's the California crypto banks that were the first ones to go down is at least consistent with, uh, with what I'm talking about. So I'm not into uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. Again, that's just me. Okay. Okay, so far? Yep. Fantastic, uh, Sid. Great stuff. Okay, is that you, Carl? No, that's Mr. Paul Gill. No, it's uh, Paul up in the. It's up oh. in the. I'm up from the west coast, oh. uh, just listening in. I uh, I was just uh, uh, preoccupied before and I couldn't uh, catch first half, but uh, great, great stuff, Sid. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. You're a you're a very experienced, highly knowledgeable dude. So coming from you, that that's a nice uh, positive statement. I appreciate it. Oh gosh, uh, you know, come on, Sid. <laughs> I think you've, uh, uh, you're one of those guys that have forgotten more than I have ever known. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Too humble yet. Okay, okay now let's continue look, on. Now, okay, let's look at the short-term young technology stocks. Uh, well, there's two things happening in the markets right now. Okay, uh, IPO markets are deader than dead. Uh, small technology stocks or slaughtered, and um, they all need lots of capital. So, and they don't look that good, generally speaking, generally meaning in the vast majority of cases. So I do not touch, would not touch young technology stocks unless there was something absolutely outstanding about the management team. And the management team knew how to save cash and and they were working uh, appropriately, and they're highly experienced and proven. All right, that could make a difference. Uh, but as a rule, I'm not touching small technology stocks. What if, now, what if it's a what if Go it's ahead. a tech stock that you think has a solution for the new world? There's so many of those up there; it isn't funny. And uh, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Edison had all the solutions for the new world, and he managed to make a lot less money than J.P. Morgan. Um, well, so the, the skill set to get a, a piece of paper up is is Hollywood and marketing and politics and being able to get people to give you more and more money. And if you've got that skill set and you know how to win a, a war and win a battle and not get killed, okay, uh, you're probably the guy to go with the, <laughs> the technology stock. That'll work. 
Uh, otherwise, uh, uh, now, how do I, how can I evaluate if somebody's got those abilities? Heck, every time I look at a small cap stock, uh, I, you know what I'm like. I spend hundreds of hours studying the team, the stock, the business. And then I look at all the documents. It's a lot of work. It, it, it's, it's, it's more than a full-time job. It's really quite something else. Now, short-term real estate. Uh, short-term real estate is, prop, for me, it's a complete and total risk. Uh, while I do own a fair chunk of real estate right now, and I actually bought the stuff at prices uh, higher than what it's at right now, uh, my, my average mortgage on the real estate that I own works out to 25 30%. Uh, and I've got a 1.8% interest rate from before. So, you know, uh, if I had, if I was going to buy it now, would I buy it? No, but I bought it. I sure ain't going to sell it. So it, it's okay. But no new real estate right now for sure. Short term, short term, no new real estate. It's because of credit markets and it's because there's no quasi equilibrium yet. When the credit markets uh, stabilize and when you're quasi equilibrium, then that's different, but I would, I'm not touching it. Now, financial institutions, all right? Now, if you take a look at, uh, by the way, if you want to look at technology stocks, take a look at the biotech index, uh, XBI, the S&P biotech index. That is the worst-looking chart. You had a beautiful uptick from, from 7 to 15, beautiful A wave, impulse wave. You had a beautiful, perfect zigzag correction, 2015-16. You had a super strong, very positive bull market, third wave, extended third wave, perfect, what you'd expect from 2018 to 2020, even with the 2020 uh, Trump collapse. And even with the post-Trump collapse, straight up to the sky. But we've now had a retracement of... uh, it's gone from one a hundred dollars over over uh, one forty, which is like whatever that is seventy percent. Then you had a, a correction up, which was almost you couldn't see it, and now it's going down again. The charts are awful, just awful. Now there is a there may be an exception from time to time to address what you just said about exceptions, Carl. There's a company called Vertex, V R T X. Okay, uh, I was an institutional equity salesman. I'm starting to age myself, but it's even worse than I'm going to indicate now. I was institutional equity salesman in 1994. There's a guy I covered called Morrison. He's the guy who gave the uh, the money for the uh, Morrison Hall at U of T over on, on uh, St. George there. And I covered him, and he was a big fan of Vertex back then. The stock's done nothing but go up. If you look at VRTX and you look at that chart, you would not know we're in a bear market right now. You think we're in a bull market, and and we've never had a bear market. All the corrections are normal corrections, even in 2020. After having gone in the it from it from 80 to 280, it went down to 180, which is 33. percent That's a normal correction, and it's 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 well past its high right now. Now it's in another small correction, but it's part of a bull wave up. Would I buy it now? No, uh, uh, I wouldn't. Uh, but uh, would I hold it if I had it? Yes. I sound a bit like the guy in television when I speak like that, but it just goes, goes to show how when you have a, an accrued gain in something, you're not that worried about it, you feel good about it. It just proves how important psychology is. An economist at university would say, you're not, you know, you, you can always sell something. There's an opportunity cost. It doesn't make sense. But I'm like everybody else. Uh, I, you know, I, I am emotional, et cetera. Now, 
Vertex is at 10 times revenue, 26 times earnings. Its book value is 54 bucks. And it's only trading at five or six times book value for a chart with a fantastic valuation. When I say only, what I mean is compared to Amazon, this thing is brilliant. And compared to, uh, you know, Apple, it's okay. And the growth rate's way higher. So, you know, there, there's an exception, say, for biotech and it's Vertex. All right. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, that one. Okay. Uh, real estate. Now, financial institutions. Now, man, those in, I'm talking about the U.S. institutions, and the Canadian guys don't look that good either, by the way. The stock chart on those uh, U.S. stocks uh, look worse than death. They're, they look terrible, all of them. Uh, some look less terrible than others, but they all look terrible. If I look at the chart, BAC, Bank of America, uh, you had a monster collapse in 2008. That was a, um, a probably a, a, a higher wave collapse. That was a collapse. Wow. $51 to $2, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. That's something. Then you had a, uh, a, a slow corrective pattern from 2009 to 2015. The fact that the stock went from 6 bucks to 15 it would not have impressed uh, Livermore because there had not yet been uh, a, a proof of a correction. And, with, and, and that was just the correction. Now, after 2015, going to 2022, you had a, you had a very strong um, impulse wave, a, a wave three going up. Now, what would Livermore have done? Well, he would have seen the first, uh, the first um, correction rally to, to, to the 2008 decline. That decline would have been way more than 20%. He wouldn't have got in. Uh, but then he would wait for the next downturn and to see what happens. Then he would have noticed the downturn went from $18 to $6, but it didn't go right back to 3 and went up again. Then he would take a position. Then when it goes to uh, $18, he would uh, take a full position. And even if it went back from 18 to 12, he'd call that 20%. He would call that a, uh, a reaction, but not strong enough to reverse the uptrend. And he's participated all the way up, right? What would he be doing right now? He'd be selling uh, because of the, he'd almost be selling. He'd almost be selling. But he would have been carrying a profit from six bucks to 33 bucks. So you can see even the famous trader Livermore, and I, I understand the way he traded, you know, he, he's got these patterns. He would have stuck to it. Now, what does Elliott Wave tell me? Elliott Wave tells me, man, this thing is scary. You have to not just look at the, the 10 year pattern and the five year pattern. But if you look at the correction in the one-year pattern, it's horrible. Two thing, two bad things have happened. First, you had is you had a massive extended first impulse wave down, starting in 2022. That's huge. Then you've got a correction, which has been going on for six or eight months. And now, in the middle of that correction, you've got a straight-down movement of uh, 20% in the last couple of weeks. Bank of America, very scary. I wouldn't touch it. Okay, J.P. Morgan, uh, just as bad. <laughs> it, it's got the five three five patterns. It's got the zigzag patterns. It's got the big impulse, uh, the post Trump move. But uh, and it's and it's wanting it wanted to stay positive. It was terrible. And if you if you go through the chart, if you study, practice book, whatever, fits it perfectly. Then I look at uh, BlackRock. Uh, BlackRock looks scary as hell. When someone said, you know, are some of these patterns manipulated? Yeah, yeah, you can tell they're working on manipulating it. No question. And I can tell you right now, it's in what's called a flat, it's an expanded flat correction. And 
even though it got down to 550 and went up to 750, it was still in an expanded flat correction. No surprise, it's now going down at 650. This correction tells me it's going to 550 and then 450. Now, if all of a sudden you see an impulse pattern going up, that's different. But right now it's it's going straight down. So, so it's a short-term short if you follow the, the daily charts and the hourly charts. Now, the reason you got to, for, for short-term traders, do it is because uh, the big pattern gets reflected in the small pattern in the small pattern because all these stocks have these characters and personalities. That's why you look at the minutes and the days and the hours uh, because that helps you confirm what's happening on the big, on the big size. And most guys who do charts don't do that. Then I'm looking at Schwab. We talked about Schwab. Uh, a couple of, uh, like a month ago, right? Uh, yeah, you and I actually had a private conversation about Schwab. Yeah. Schwab, is there something scary about it? I have no idea what the fundamentals are, but this thing looks horrible. Now, Schwab is one of the world's largest discount brokers, if not the largest one. It's not a bank. I don't know why it looks this awful, but that causes me to start studying the market even more to look at the credit problems even more look at the banks more when a big player like schwab who should not be a bank is suffering like this they're starting to look like robin hood or coinbase very scary very very scary and this thing has been on a strong impulse wave from 2009 to 2018 it had a modest zigzag correction from 2018 to 20 then it was on a massive impulse from 20 to uh 2020 to 20 now it looks terrible it's on a zigzag, hey, and it's almost 90 degrees. Go I think ahead. it's a good opportunity here because a lot of people know the name, but they don't understand the business model. So when, you're so, when you mention how concerned you are about how crappy the chart looks in the business, why don't you, can you please just give us a, a one-minute breakdown of what Schwab's sure. business model is, where they get their revenue? Sure. Because if people are uh, projecting that that revenue is going down, that actually says a lot about the overall. Good point. Schwab is a discount broker. They're like TD Securities or Scotia Securities. They're a discount broker. I think you can trade for zero commissions. I think. Or, you know, TD charges me 19 bucks. Some other trading shops charge me nothing. I think they do for zero because they do, you know, you know, they do these uh, you know, hidden trades and they make money off your inventory. So it's, so it's a discount broker. They make their money trading stocks as an agent. They don't make loans except margin loans. Okay. So if Schwab... America, which is the world's probably the world's biggest discount broker who makes their money trading stocks for clients, not even their own trading, not a hedge fund, they're an agent. And there's, they do some little trading, but they're an agent and they know what the order flow looks like so they can tell what's going on. They're what, what I call a broker. If a company like that sees their stock price fall from 85 to 50 in not too long a period of time, and just now it collapsed from 80 to 55, it's telling me there's something, there's something predictive in the stock market here, okay? Now, um, I should mention something. Uh, when I say I look at the charts, yep, I do. When I say I don't believe in fundamentals, as a rule, what I mean is you can't make money in fundamentals. But, you know, you're always looking for confirmation. You're looking for other bits of information. It's like when you drive, there's all kinds of things happening. You don't quite know how you avoid accidents, especially me. Um, so when I, when I see a, 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 you know, when you see a, you know, if you see a, a, a discount broker who should not be a risky company, their stock collapsing and they make their money off of an active stock market, 
the hypothesis is we're, we're going to be in a long bear market. So does that make sense, Carl? Yes, it does. Absolutely. I just wanted you to make that, that, that point. That's all. Right. Now, there's something else about technical trading. Technical trading is supposed to reflect psychology, i.e. people do, don't even know why they do it. That makes sense. There's also a theory, and it ties into the question we had, the first question we had uh, before, which is, which is that, um, you know, people manipulate the market. There is a model, there is a concept that the players, the players, whoever the players are, accumulate stocks at a low price and then distribute stocks at a high price, accumulation and distribution. Those concepts were developed in the 1930s and 40s by you know, uh, traders to rationalize why sometimes does the stock stay high for a long time and it goes up and down, and then why does it stay low for a long time? And the model is that smart people are accumulating low. They then start to sell as it moves up, and then when it's real high, they distribute, and then uh, they get their final selling at the end, and they get their final buying at the end, and all of the poor you know, people in the middle who are always losing, are chasing it up and running from it down or wait too long on the way down or they're, or they're averaging down. So that's that theory of accumulation and distribution. And to some extent, I think that's true. But I do think that the bigger thing that causes these movements is just basic psychology. Even Livermore said nobody can control the market. Even George, that was in the 30s, George Soros said nobody can control the market. And even BlackRock can't control the market. We sure as hell know the Japanese government can't control the bond market. <laughs> and we know that the Fed, well, I know the Fed. Yeah, I'm pretty damn sure the Fed can't control anything either. They can try to pretend they do. Uh, so so the, the, the financial institutions right now are scary. The big banks look bad, et cetera. Now, can I go on to the health stocks? Absolutely. Okay, if you look at the health stocks, and if you look at, um, um, let's see here. I'm just pulling them out. You've got Roche. You've got Pfizer, et cetera. <clears throat> Uh, those stocks, especially the vaccine stocks, look terrible. Pfizer looks awful. Roche looks okay. And what does that tell me? Well, you know, I know a fair bit about the medical system. I've got my views on what's happening with social welfare obligations and Medicare and Medicaid. I'm negative that that stuff's going to continue. In fact, I see it falling apart even in Canada. If it's falling apart in Canada, it's definitely falling apart in the States. And I know the whole vaccine thing. I have my views on the whole vaccine thing, which is uh, not favorable. So when I see Pfizer getting slaughtered, and right now they got a, they're in a diagonal pattern going down. It's a terrible pattern. Given that the, the head of the thing is all is all in there with with uh, those guys in Europe. Uh, what do they call the, the that organization? The, the World, World Economic, Economic Forum. Forum. Right. Yeah, which I don't like. Uh, that's just my prejudice. But given the fact that the whole vaccine thing, I think, has peaked, um, if the stock was going up I, 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 and I like the pattern, I, I'd still buy it. I want to find out you know, why it means people still like it. But the fact that this pattern looks horrible, and it's a diagonal. Initially, it's a diagonal down, not an impulse. It means some people are trying to like it, but it's a classic uh, uh, impulse down. It's a 53535. It's a, it's a recovery in the third wave. And the correction uh, gets back into the first wave. These are all these technical things. So therefore, it's a diagonal. A diagonal is not a strong down wave, but I think this diagonal is just the beginning. 
based on the fundamentals I look at the stuff. So I wouldn't be looking. I would not be looking at it. Okay, there's that. Uh, Roche looks fine. It's still uh, negative, but the correction is not bad, etc. Now, there's, there's another stock I'm going to talk about, the military stocks, called uh, Lockheed Martin. Okay, I've talked about it before. I got involved in Lockheed about um, two years ago or whenever COVID started in, in March of 2020. I had a fundamental uh, an, uh, historical analysis. My historical analysis was based on Thucydides, the uh, Peloponnesian Wars. Uh, what happens when you get um, um, these uh, uh, disease disease states that you know go around society? What what do they call it? I just lost the term. It's uh, uh, pandemics, right? What happens? Pandemics. A, pan- a pandemic, right? Well, what happens is society falls apart. Whether the pandemic was real or fake, it falls apart, and then war starts. So that was just me. Uh, but I thought, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna p- start taking a position at Lockheed Martin. And I started getting there and. 2020 and uh you know 325 now it's 475 the chart looks looks fine it looks good there's no serious correction on lockheed and uh that's interesting so the socioeconomic view on lockheed is is neutral the technical is good the macro is bad overall so that's uh, that's bad the fundamentals of lockheed are good the pe is 18 the revenue multiple is one time the growth is eight percent and the volatility, both uh, instantaneous volatility and beta, is one. So I'm just going with the chart. And everything else I look at just to see, hey, what am I missing? Is there something that I'm missing that's going on? So that's sort of what I – that's the, left, the left-hand side of the chart. But it's interesting, though, that uh, you took that position based on your worldview in, in history of um, uh, things outside of the, the market, right? That's actually what got you into that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it just goes to show, just like you know, men and women notice about the uh, – you know the opposite people are somewhat inconsistent but i just i had such a strong fundamental view that i started taking a position not a full position but a 20 percent. then i added then i got nervous and i sold but when i see this chart it's so strong in a market like we're in when a chart's that strong it tells me yep smart money is accumulating it and they're trying to get it as cheap as possible so i'm okay with it Big position. Just on uh, just on that note, Sid, I wanted to mention there's a guy on Instagram that uh, follows what uh, some of the politicians buy, um, and especially the U.S. Senate and the the people who sit on the defense committees and and all the rest of it. And uh, I think if I recall, the last time he looked at it, there was a a number of buys in 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 the defense stocks such yep. as Lockheed Martin. Yep, not a surprise. Doesn't prove anything, but at least it doesn't give me reason to be to to be alert myself that what am I missing? If I saw them selling, then I think peace has to be breaking out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly, exactly. <clears throat> now let's look at the right hand side of that uh, of that uh, chart. Less dangerous places to save. Uh, Short term U.S. dollar is fine. It's it's strong enough. I talked about the chart. Short term Canadian dollars is fine. So even though I think there's a good chance we're, we're into massive inflation, and, and uh, it's already factual, we're into serious inflation, unless there's a sudden social change and a sudden change to government policy, which could happen. But but um, uh, I don't mind short-term uh, the U.S. dollar, Canadian dollar. I'm not sure what else we want to go into. Gold and silver. I'll show you the gold and silver chart. I have picked up more gold and silver. I have a strong position in PHYS. Uh, Canadian dollar denominated sprout 
non-derivative, non-hedged, fully financed, fully paid for in cash bullion. Um, I think the governments, if they're going to start clamping down on non-U.S. dollars, which they've done historically in the past, they've become very dictatorial in the past. They made holding gold illegal, which is unbelievable. You got a $10,000 fine in 1932 to 1950 or something. You went to jail for five years if you held gold in turn of the government. That's pretty wild, right? Uh, but I think they're going to have to Bitcoin first. So for now, gold is okay. If I thought they're going to go after gold, I'm not sure what the heck I would do. I'd have to keep it, you know, in some island somewhere. And I'm not sure if I'm if I'm that that extreme. But that person. would offer you exposure to your Sprott Trust holding, though. If they if like I know right. that's an extreme thing to talk about, but holding physical would actually benefit you there more if you versus something that is stock market related, even though they do probably. Yeah. And what's 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 keeping me from doing that is. Uh, Unless you buy a brick of gold, you're paying a 25% premium. I hate doing that. When you buy PHYS, it's usually a 1% discount. And then you got to carry it around. Then you got to, you know, I mean, you, you got to be pretty, uh, pretty pioneer like. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you've got your, uh, you've got your blunderbuss uh, uh, with you then, you said. Yeah, yeah. You got to have your tent and your knives and, you know, be able to grow trees and plants and, you know, veg- vegetables. But uh, you know, uh, if it started to look pretty scary, I, I would I would transfer it into uh, you know little gold briquettes. So I would and silver. Although a lot of people are in silver, silver's been way stronger than gold because it's a lot cheaper. So people are moving into silver, and the gold traders and the coin traders, as some people probably know, are very very busy, busier than they've been forever. So you know, a lot of people are moving in. Okay, uh, the metals. I want to talk about the metals uh, tonight. It's too complicated. Frankly, right now, uh, I'm, I'm into the uh, precious metals, but not into the base metals at all. I notice even the gold stocks are doing okay, and usually they lag so much it isn't funny. By the way, all these fundamental theories that if the interest rates go up, uh, gold goes down, blah, blah. Yeah, that's worked for a while. But at some point, if gold really is a hedge, that'll break. It won't matter where the interest rates go, it'll break, because the real interest rates will be negative, which they are right now anyway. So models, th- theories change all the time to justify what's actually happening. That's, that happens all the time. I, I'm going to uh, oil. Hold on. Before you move on to oil, I'm going to ask you one question. Yep. Are you surprised by the, um, the performance of gold and silver given the, uh, the last month to six weeks of the banking crisis? Am I surprised gold is picking up? Well, you mean? Uh, yeah, okay, it's picking up, but I, I mean, just given the, you know, the sort of some of the um, the headlines. I'm not in the least You're surprised. Not, not in the. You mean it hasn't hasn't done yeah, better? I, yeah, actually. No, I, I'm not. I'm not in the least surprised. Now, why is that? It's because I've been following gold since 1987. I joined Merrill Lynch in '86, '87. I was in corporate finance. I got to know Peter Monk and, and Rob McHugh and all those guys really well in those days. Ian Delaney. And I, I did my own gold companies and stuff. And there's been very little correlation. Gold has not been much of an actor for um, 30 years. Hasn't done much. No surprise whatsoever. When people will talk about gold being a, being a, a great thing for tough times and wars, that has not been the case. Since uh, since uh, Volcker, since the big run up in seventy nine eighty. Now I can rationalize why that's the case, why that happens. 
well, I'll rationalize it. It's been the case because we've been in a pumped up <clears throat> asset bubble for 50 years. So, so people, just, you know, there's no need for gold. So I'm not surprised that gold hasn't moved that much at all. And by the way, you can expect the gold correction. When I look at the gold chart, I'll show you. You'll see why it's no surprise. Which sort of shows you why charts are important. Uh, because they do tell you, they do average out what everybody in the world is doing. Um, and that's, that's, that's my answer to that question. Okay, thanks, Sid. Okay, now oil. Uh, I like oil. And what got me thinking about oil is actually Warren Buffett. I think the guy's really smart. Uh, he doesn't like commodities at all. He likes operating businesses. But he, get, he got an oxy a while back. So he thinks it's got good fundamental value. Uh, I look at the charts. It's not bad. Yeah, every day when I drive by the gas station, I notice gas is going down, oil is going down. But if Buffett's in there, I look at it. I say, you know what? I like commodities. Mercantilism. Remember I was talking about mercantilism a bit before, but today, go back and look at the slide in mercantilism. The world's moving towards commodities, physical things. There's a good belief in my brain. They're moving away from paper. They're moving away. And if you look, that's why I have that bond chart, that little chart on slide three to show you how terrible, absolutely terrible, awful, disgusting bonds and even stocks generally are potentially because of what's happening in the financial system. So um, that's why I like commodities. And uh, oil to me is, is it's so overdone with ESG climate warming, whatever, man, things are getting, but people, you know, look at the way the government wants to now subsidize lithium, right? And I see the way, I don't know who it is. It's not Biden because he couldn't possibly be making these decisions the way he is. He can barely find his way out, uh, you know, out of the White House. But someone's decided to sell down the oil, et cetera. They're trying to kill the Russians is what they're doing, which is how they got the Berlin Wall knocked down, right? And you know what? It's not working. Uh, but therefore, oil, oil for me now is like a value play. It's not a momentum play. So there's an exception. There's a big exception. I'm not going with the oil chart. I'm going with something else. This is sure I'm like I'm typical. Even though I typically say fundamentals don't matter, and this night you can't predict. But if Buffett wasn't buying any oil, I probably would not be buying oil. Which shows in this case, it's like Aristotle said. Some some people make decisions on logic. Some people make decisions on emotion. Some people make decisions based on what smart people are doing. With an oil, it's it's because it's because Buffett's buying it. Now, Buffett bought Apple, too. I didn't like Apple. So, but, you know, you put it all together, I, I'm into oil. Uh, but I'm into the big S&P stocks. Actually, I just put uh, 50000 bucks into a private placement in oil <laughs> in Alberta. So I guess I'll make it oil even more now I think about it. Can't believe I did that. Um, and it's not even going public for a while. But uh, great management team. So uh, uh, oil, I'm definitely in oil. Okay. Selective mineral development stocks. Uh, you know, if you study the sector well and you have a fantastic team and you know how, if they're a Canadian, how they're getting along and if they're in the right place, there's some places in Nevada that are bad. There's some places, you know, North Carolina that are okay. You really know what's going on. If management is not short term and if they're not overly capital intensive, ESG is absolutely uh, a good place to be if you, all the other factors are there and if the chart looks good. Mercantilism is about colonialism. When the economy goes bad, when people have run out of money, when they have to do something, when they haven't got enough uh, consumers, when there's not enough of a birth rate, think North, think North America, there's only two things countries do. They become colonialists, empire builders, 
is what America did after numerous depressions in the late 1890s. That's when they took over the world. Took a long time, but they did it. They become colonialists or they start wars. Um, so selective mineral development, anything that supports electrification with actual companies that of the hundreds of companies that are out there, the thousands that will make it, that's a good place to be. And I'm actually one which is a private placement out of Europe, oddly enough. And I put a fair bit of capital into that. I like the guys. I like the team. I knew them. I know their financial guy. And um, worst that happens to lose all my money in it. But, but yep, I, I'm there. I'm there. Now, large cap electrification. Look up Krupp Industries, K-R-U-P-P. Find out who they were. Uh, we're into a Krupp world with governments. Large cap electrification companies are good. Military is good because they have to make jobs for people. We're going back into engineering. We're getting away from lawyers running the world and accountants and bookkeepers and, and you know, uh, computer button pushers and AI, whatever. I mean, you know, so electrification is good. Uh, now, uh, essential cash generating companies are good. If you look at the charts for Mondelez, MDNZ, and if you look at uh, McDonald's, uh, those companies, You've got the opposite of corrections going on. You've got wonderful impulse waves, long-term positive charts, and you can justify why they look like that. They're, they're fundamental food stocks. That's the last thing that goes. So, you know, I, 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 that to me looks, looks quite good. Long-term real estate is perfect, perfect. But, you know, right now we have a massive credit situation going on. They're weakening. There's lots of supply, no rush. But if we do get into serious inflation, uh, that's good. But during the Great Depression, you know, stocks went down 90%. Guess how much real estate went down? Can you guess? 90%. So that was a deflationary environment. A deflationary environment, everything goes down. It doesn't matter what you've got, even Bitcoin. Everything goes down. That's, that's proven by history. That's, uh, uh, you know, historically, that's what happens. Why? I can come up with a theory. Uh, they teach those theories in school. Substitutes, wealth effect, whatever. But uh, I know that, that they all correlate. So if I start to see deflation come in, that's different. But I do have a lot of cash, so I'm protected. Um, but real estate, as long as the world stays in its current pattern. I, like, I know downtown Toronto. I like downtown Toronto. All my stuff is downtown Toronto. You know, Yorkville, et cetera. You know, that's where it is because I know it, et cetera. Uh, now, there's only two charts left. Three slides. I'll be finished in... Uh, 12 minutes, and then questions or, or whatever happens, okay? The next chart's the LA Wave chart SPX, okay? If you see that one, uh, Carl? I do. Now, before Elliott Wave, now, I'll say two things about that chart. If, if I was just going with, uh, with uh, Livermore, my hero, <laughs> Livermore, uh, he wouldn't be buying any of this stuff. Livermore would be waiting for the... <laughs> He'd be like Michael Burry. He'd be waiting for the big short, right? And he'd be lining up to sell everything once everything was turning over. And he'd probably be right because he always was. He made like $150 million in 1907 in the bear market. And then in 29, he made one point five. He made like, like $250 million or $350 million, like well over $2, $3 billion shorting everything. That's, that's, that's unbelievable. Right. Uh, so if he if he would not be shorting, he would not be doing anything right now. He'd be sitting back taking it easy. Why do I say that? 
Because if you look at that chart, uh, you're going to see that that between uh, beginning of 2022 and now, you've had uh, two bottoms, but the bottoms haven't definitively reversed the long position from the grand super cycle up to January 2022. Also, you've got a correction going up again. So it's not, it's not, it's not proven yet. He doesn't go in until it's proven. Um, so he wouldn't be going in there yet if, if you follow his rules religiously. Okay. Now, if you're talking short-term movements, if he was studying it, but he was not, uh, believe it or not, he was not a short-term trader. He, he, he was looking for the big kill, just like Michael Burry, right? And so, but that's the SPX. Now, let me tell you from a Elliott Wave perspective what the SPX is telling us, okay? You had a fifth wave, which was fantastic, and it peaked January 1st, 2022, right, Carl? That was the peak, if you look at the big cycle, of the 17,894, 1794 to now, super cycle wave five. It was the peak of the, um, su- of the super cycle from uh, 1932 after the 29th of 32 crash in bear market to now. And it's the peak of the, of the super cycle from 1982 to now at that point. So what's happening? Well, be, over the course of 2022, what you have is a, if you look at it, you see that first low uh, in March, and then you get the second low in June, right? Then you get the third low in August, September. That's a clear diagonal. You see that, Carl? Yep. Then you get the, cor- the corrections around March. You get a correction up 50%. That's classic correction. Then you get the, uh, the second correction, a big one in September, October. That's a classic correction. That correction moves into the first wave down earlier in the year, but it doesn't totally recover the second wave. It's a classic 5-3-5-3-5 diagonal. <clears throat> That's the down wave. Leading diagonal, it's called. Now we're into uh, September of 2022. Notice how the stock is sort of going up. Oh, the bear market's over. It's wonderful. No, it's not. That is a friggin' zigzag. That is a friggin' uh, correction upwards. And it's a zigzag. It's an up, down, and up. You see that? The up, down, the up? That's a zigzag. Yeah. Now, what's happening right now is it's going back down again. So there's one of, there's two possibilities here, okay? The first possibility is, it's moving. It's becoming a double zigzag, which has a connector, and that down up, that uh, down, and now slide up at the end. That's what that is. Or it's the beginning of the next mega wave down. But it sure ain't no big wave going straight up, right? So it's no surprise that Prater thinks the first, the first stop, the first stop going down the elevator from first Canadian place is the forty-second floor, <laughs> not not the street level. So he thinks that, and uh, that's that's a, that's a down that's a down wave technically, uh, Elliott wave theory, right? Um, so there's the SPX. So the overall market is not looking too hot. Now let me move into the gold chart next, okay? You see that one, the gold yeah. chart, Elliott wave theory gold. Now there's a, there's a, a chart from 2009 to 2023. All right, look, we had a big impulse from 2000 2013, went from 600 to 1600. That's a that's a five wave, right? Then we had a down, up, down. That's a zigzag. That's a correction, pretty intense correction. It went from 800 to 1,200 to 600, 600 over 1,000 to 60%. That's a Fibonacci, 61% down. Now, then you get a bit more of a downturn, but it's basically a, it's going nowhere. 
And, and that's just a continuation, right? So we've had this running flat correction and, and a zigzag. It's a double three, what they call a triple three. It shows you bear markets can last a long time. Now, we had a definite <clears throat> impulse wave uh, going from 2019 to 2021, right? But that wave did not exceed the prior high, right? Well, Livermore wouldn't like that, and neither does Elliott Wave Theory. As a matter of fact, you're in a minor pattern. That's why it's got brackets called a, uh, uh, it's called a, uh, it's got a round bracket, which means it's an intermediate rather than a than a, uh, a primary, right? Now, if you look at what's happening right now, who the hell knows what that is, right? I mean, it's up, down, and it's it's down, up, and down. That's a flat. That could be a flat. Now, if you're moving up again, that could just be another double three, triple three. Nothing's happening. You really can't tell for sure. Okay? So technically, that chart doesn't tell you anything. Uh, it, I mean, let me rephrase that. It tells you it's hard, that it's not clear. There's no strong impulse moving up. Uh, so the world, that's where the world is at. Now, is J.P. Morgan, you know, manipulating it? Is it all because of the shorts? Is it the Russians? Who knows? Uh, but that chart, it's neutral. Notwithstanding, I still bought more gold. <laughs> <laughs> when I told you last time on Thursday yeah. and Friday, which which again shows that I've got more than just charts. There's, there's some I look at all this inflation stuff going on. I look at the way they're going after Bitcoin. If if they really go after Bitcoin and cryptos and the crypto banks, remember it's the crypto banks they went after first, right? Like like what's going on? Why? Oh, banks are liquid. All banks are liquid. That by definition they're liquid. Oh, it's re, it's fractional reserve. Gold is fractional reserve. If you know the way banking really works. Uh, if you lend out money to a guy and you can't demand it back within 24 hours, when your money gets demanded back to your depositors, you haven't got it. You're you're, you're not liquid. Banks are never liquid. So here's a so good quote. I don't believe that quote from Rick Rule. When you loan money okay. to a bank by way of deposit, you are an unsecured creditor to what is in fact a regulated hedge fund that's leveraged nine to one. Perfectly put. Yeah, I like that one. Perfectly put. Any more charts, Sid? Okay. No, but one last uh, page. I rather like this page. The Sun also rises. Tyrone Power, Ava Gardner, Eddie Albert, all the greats of the past. So Hemingway writes this book, The Sun Also Rises. And like a lot of the books that got written in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, Ernest Hemingway, John Dos Passo, Somerset Mom, Fitzgerald, for 40 years, People just wrote books about tragedy, unhappiness, how awful life was, how people lose, lost all their money. You get the message how long a bear market can last? Yeah, very long time. And there's a line in there. Bill says, how did you go bankrupt? Mike says, two ways, gradually and then suddenly. And Bill says, what brought it on? Mike says, friends, lots of friends and creditors. <laughs> so there's a lesson there. That was people's lives for 20, 30 years. So uh, just because you got born in, in 1965 and had a great bull run, or you were born in 85 and you had a nice bull run, or you got into crypto and it started, you had a nice bull run, it might be the end of the bull run, or maybe not. But uh, cycles come, cycles go. Most long-term cycles last 70 years. Now, here's the news about a 70-year cycle. If you're born in the beginning of the downturn, and it's terrible, you get pretty smart for the rest of your life. Yeah. Although if you're 65 or 50 when the bad cycle comes, that's a bit of a shock. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what I say. And when you're 34 and you, and you move from a good cycle to a bad cycle, it's rather confusing, which is why I enjoy doing these, these talks. Yeah. Well said. That's it. Uh, Sid, thank you very much. The last yeah. thing, last thing if I can say, sorry. Don't be surprised if you see some more big banks go down. Don't be surprised if you see a massive credit default swap problem. Uh, and then they'll say, oh, fraud, corruption. Like, don't be surprised if a bunch of real, public real estate companies go to zero. Uh, there's a lot of scary stuff going out there. Now, here's, here's the funny punchline. There's always scary stuff going on. Except when the market's going up because people Nobody are positive and they keep pumping money into it and they're all financed. Nobody knows. Everyone's a hero. But when people get scared and socioeconomics takes over and mob psychology, people are anxious. Everyone's a crook. All management's bad. They didn't know what they were doing. So uh, that's what you got to be aware of. And if you go back to my investment strategy, what I'm doing personally, that's not advice, personally, uh, I think that's my rationale for what I'm doing. I know this is a little bit corny, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, I love the way you ended it off there, Sid. Absolutely agree with that 100%. Um, now, there was some, a question that came in from Sarah. I didn't want to stop you in the middle of your charts and your personal portfolio, um, but I think maybe you could just uh, answer her. It says, question, can you please repeat the word that meant market correction began with the letter T used by the speaker? Market correction. Began with a T. Okay. You used a word that started with, uh, well, with T to uh, explain a market correction. Oh, okay. Okay. So, uh, so I'm not sure what the word was, but but I can be very definitive on the word correction. Okay, I'll be very definitive on that. Okay, and that's important because you know there's that funny YouTube I saw a while back. Some guy says he says, uh, you know, I bought this stock and then I went down, and I sold it. And then it went up. And then I bought more of it and went up and then I went down. And then I bought more of it and then I went down and more of it. I went down and then I went down more and I sold it all and then it went up. So he goes on and on, right? Clarence, he does everything wrong, right? Now, why do people do that? It's because I'm answering the question it's because they don't know the difference between a rally and a reaction, which is the original term is for a correction. And if you understand rallies and reactions and corrections, and if you understand uh, ratios of those of them, then you start to understand what those ups and downs really mean. With me so far? Yeah, I, I am. Okay. Okay. So uh, when a stock goes up, it's referred to as, it used to be referred to as a rally. It's going up. When a stock goes down, it used to be referred to as a reaction. So that was in the uh, 1920s to 1930s. I'm a, I wasn't alive back then, uh, but I read, I, I, I study books. If you saw my library, I've got hundreds of investment and finance and history books going back um, all the time, right? So if you're trading, if you're investing long-term, you have to think about, well, why is the stock going up and down? Is this significant or not significant? And what is it doing? Bearing in mind that nothing can go straight up, just like life doesn't go straight up, and nothing goes straight down, just like life doesn't go straight down. So if the general direction is down, uh, that's, that's, it's going down, but uh, once in a while, 
it goes up because people are jumping in because they think maybe it's it's too cheap or it's going to go up, or they're accumulating stocks at a low price. People usually think in bear markets, so a correction usually means it's going down. First it goes up, then it goes down in a correction. So a correction, usually people think of bear markets. So a correction, you always in the modern lingo, means it's going down, it's correcting down, i.e. it can't keep going straight up, just like you can't keep eating and eating and not having to take a break, and you, you can't be a bodybuilder, never stop exercising, and just do 15 hours, and you can't just do, you know, you got to take a break. That's, that's a reaction, okay? So in bull markets, you get reactions. The other term is rallies. I'm sorry, you get corrections. The other term for the same thing is rallies and reactions. Uh, rally means you're going up for sure. Reaction means you're going down for sure. Now, what does technical analysis do? You have to determine if a rally means you're in a bull market. So the, so the medium and long-term trend is up. So no matter what happens, it's going to go up, if it goes down once in a while. Or are you in a bear market? what's called a bear market or a, a, a bear market. So it's basically going down. And even if it's going down, it may go up. There's also flat markets. So that's why uh, corrections are important. Corrections being the modern term because everyone likes to be positive. A correction means it's only there for a little while and then it's going to go up again. But the keys are rallies and reactions. So Livermore had decision rules that are on rallies and reactions, and he needed two of these things to test them. And Elliott Wave Theory doesn't really talk about rallies and reactions. He talks about stocks going up, stocks going down. He talks about, um, um, uh, what does he call them? He calls them, uh, um, actionary and reactionary. That's the term Elliott uses, actionary. I'm sorry, he used the term, Motive and reactive, that's his category. So let me, let me say it again. Maybe you should write it down. Uh, the, in the modern lingo, they assume market stocks are going up. If, if they go down, it's called a correction before it goes up again. That's modern lingo. Livermore used rallies and reactions. Rally means it's going up. Reaction means it's going down. And Elliott Wave uses, um, I lost it again. Uh, Elliott Wave's terms are, uh, are uh, motive and reactive. Motive means it's moving up. And reactive means it's moving down. So these are terms which are used for technical analysis only, for charts. So you can try to not overreact to uh, to, to noise, so to speak. You want to see what the what the what the main pattern is. Those are the terms. Now the modern lingo with brokers is something I consider extremely exceedingly bizarre and, and actually ridiculous. You know this concept that a bear market is what happens when, when the market goes down 20%, right? You know that? And the bull market is if it's going up 20%. 20 that, that's, that's a meaningless statement. It doesn't mean anything. It's just political mumbo-jumbo. And uh, it's not a technical term, and it's not a valuation term. Now, Warren Buffett, as a very unique, as a very unique individual uh, these days, talks about um, uh, Buying something for its value, right? And, and, and paying a fair price. That's a different language as well. It's a very different language. And then other people talk about metrics. So this is why I think new investors uh, can easily get uh, a bit lost because all these different people, one, one guy's talking this language, another guy's talking that language, all talking English, but all the words mean different things. 
and you can get lost in that. And that's why it's that I strongly recommend uh, two books how to trade in stocks. It's only about eight or ten bucks. Uh, don't get the secondary books about you know the fictional the fictionalized books about Livermore. They're a waste of time. But get the actual one he wrote, How to Trade the Stocks. And if you get the book by Prechter and Frost, you'll see it on Amazon. Elliott Wave, uh, what's it called? It's, it's the Elliott Wave. Um, let me see. Uh, the Elliott Wave Principle, right? Uh, those books are worth really carefully studying. And I'd say this. If you don't put the time in to really study it and understand it, you're at great risk of losing most or all of your money you invest in the markets. Sid, um, there are some really nice comments, compliments that came in uh, recently just about you and, and, and your value. It's uh, amazing. I, I'm just, I feel blessed to have met you a lot over the last couple of years during, uh, you know, obviously an extraordinary time, the, the pandemic. So many things that you've talked about uh, in chats that were in, you know, coming true. And I know that's not something that you wanted to see, but you had this, you were able to see things before they happened because of the, because of the work that you put in. Uh, and people today are taking advantage, frankly, of that wisdom and all those hours of work that you put in reading books. And I've seen Sid's books. It's amazing. He studies like, you know, 20 words, 30 words off a page. So uh, it's just unbelievable to have you on these spaces. Uh, we are going to have to shut this down now over the next five minutes. Uh, but, you know, Paul, do you have anything that you want to add to, to this or ask Sydney? Yeah. Uh, hey, Sid. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I remember how you described different types of people and, um, I'm, a, 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 I guess you might say a promoter, but, um, really I, I view myself as a company builder and um you know one of the things i would i would say about um progress and technologies and all of that is that there's always been um there's always been a, a bull market somewhere and whether you look at computers coming on in 1980 or the internet coming on in 1990 or cell phones coming on in 2000 or, you know, electric vehicles or, or social media coming on in 2010, there's always going to be that bull market at some point in time. And, and, and we've just had a very quick one on the whole pharma stuff and all of that. So I, I think you have to, to identify where, um, where those bull markets are. And, uh, right. you know, I think you've, you've definitely nailed it on, you know, that, um, that gold isn't a, isn't something that produces a, um, uh, an income for you, but it is definitely something that you should have in your portfolio and, um, and, you know, 5% of your, your funds or whatever percentage you, you want to decide on should be there. Um, you know, I think next time I'd love to be able to, to, to dig into how you, how you view commodities and the demands that are going in, yeah. uh, to those, because I, I think that, uh, one of the things that's been, um, that lost in the shuffle is that we've got, um, you know, a, a real problem with China controlling all of the commodities, all of yep. the, um, the stuff that we use to build and, and make money with our companies need those. So I've always been of that ilk, you know, I'm into lithium companies, graphite companies, copper companies. And yep. so, um, uh, you know, somewhere down the line, hopefully we can talk about that because I'd love to get your insight on it. Uh, it's been 
exceptionally, exceptionally good to to hear you speak on this. And uh, I hope to hope to do it again and, and listen in because it's been educational. I think uh, if I was writing notes, uh, I'd have to write a book basically on on all of the 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 thoughts that popped into my head based on on some of the comments and the in the information provided. So I thank That's you great, very Paul. much. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, the uh, just you know, I own quite a substantial amount of gold. If people knew, they'd be shocked. Actually, number one, <laughs> and uh, I'd also say that you know, look up mercantilism. That 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 was that was a two hundred year e- economic concept that people used up until the uh, up until the Fed got invented in nineteen thirteen, and we're moving back into it. So there's a very very good chance you're moving back into a commodity based currency, China, Russia. Africa, uh, Iran, Syria, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, they're all working together to get a, a commodity-based that currency. Bricks? So that's, yes, BRICS plus, way more. You know, the Silk Road that's getting built, there's a direct uh, uh, economic road being built from Russia to India to the Middle East that's totally bypassing Europe. Uh, the Chinese have invested heavily and financed heavily uh, Africa and Latin America, and they're all into commodities. So that, that's a major, major shift we haven't seen, frankly, since the, if you can believe it, the 19th century. Major, and isn't that what isn't that what Xi, uh, President Xi, just said? Uh, we're looking at something that hasn't happened for a hundred yeah. years. Isn't that what his quote was to Putin the other day? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? If I could just share this other comment, and and believe me, the the world goes around in 100-year cycles and bigger cycles, but 100-year cycles are absolutely – you can go back to now to 29, 29 to 1829, then to to 1789 with the French Revolution, then – you know, actually, 100-year cycles, believe it or not, I've studied very intensively, and the economy is moving those cycles. We're, we're moving back at the mercantilism or, you know, the hegemony, the, 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 you know, you think that you think the rest of the world is now going to put up with the U.S. dollar for another 50 years. I'm not saying the U.S. dollar is going to go in two weeks or two years, but um, the other major countries do everything they can to get off the U.S. dollar. There is a recent virtual almost collapse of the European banks. The United States had to put in massive swap lines to produce U.S. dollars two weeks ago which did not hit the newspapers except a couple of words. And Paul, you and I, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Carl, you and I were talking about the massive hit and the pension fund and the U.S. dollar shortage in November, yeah. right, of yeah. last year. This is something I haven't talked about. And the two quadrillion of derivatives, that's all U.S. dollar currency related, basically, and U.S. interest rate related. And it's not just nominal dollars. It's two quadrillion dollars, $2,000 trillion. The U.S. economy is $20 trillion. 2,000 over 20 is 100. That thing is mega. It's bigger than the bond market the and the um, uh, equity markets combined and, and probably bigger than the foreign currency markets. And that is a risk. So don't be surprised if there was a calamity. And by the way, there's another concept in Elliott Wave Theory, which is that history repeats itself, but whatever happened last time, it's not going to be that way. Maybe it'll be like the way it was the time before last, but not that way. I'll quickly yeah. tell you why. I'll quickly tell you why that is. It it echoes. Because people always remember what happened last time and what worked or didn't work, and that's what they focus on. And guess what? They focus on it so much that it doesn't happen. 
the calamity before last time that people don't know because they weren't around. That's what happens. So what has the Fed done since 87, 90, 2008, 2000, and 2020? They've tried to stop the Great Depression by printing money because not sufficient money is what caused the Depression, so they thought. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to cause that problem. They're not going to cause that problem. They're going to cause a 1720 problem. You know what the 1720 problem was? It was called the bubble. And have you not heard the phrase, the biggest bubble since the Dutch tulip mania? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Tulip mania. Wasn't that long ago? The South Sea bubble. Amazing. It was only one, only the second revolutionary cycle going back. So the person even my age or younger has a history. uh, So long ago, never happened. I've studied history too closely, too many times. I almost feel like everything that's happened in the past, I'm there because I've studied it so much. Uh, so, so alternation, the theory of alternation, Elliot Wave Theory, that's why the book is good. We're not going to have a, um, a, uh, that kind of a 1930s collapse. Something else is going to happen. And they went into money in the 30s, Roosevelt, both Roosevelt, Peter Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, et cetera. Uh, they're going to go to commodities this time. So, Paul, you're in the right track with that. What I'm saying is, you know, if you don't understand what's happening and if you haven't got it, like Rick Rule has an understanding, Paul got an understanding, you've got to study it. And uh, yeah, so we should therefore probably do not, not uh, in a, maybe two or three weeks, a nice review of, of all the stuff. That's probably a good idea. Okay. Well, let's cut, yeah, let's cut it off there. Um, just by okay. far one of my favorite spaces so far, if not my favorite. Uh, I love how we ended it off going back to the 17th century. That was brilliant. Um, uh, final words, Sid, you can say whatever you want until uh, next Thursday or Sunday when we, we, we do something else. Sure. Uh, investing is like people. Stocks are like people. Everything is like life. So <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but there's one more thing you have to do. Uh, people who are listening, follow, follow the money. <laughs> Thank you. You have to follow on Twitter follow the money. And, um, you know, I think that, yeah, welcome back to, uh, these Twitter spaces. Anytime you do them, um, Carl's been doing a fantastic job of bringing us the knowledge that Sid has. And so I just want to thank you so much both for, for being on and, and putting this thank together. You kindly, Paul. Cool. Okay, everyone, uh, take care, have a great week coming up and, um, yeah, we're signing off.